Hey guys, just want to let you know about an exciting episode we have coming up. And by the way, coming up this week, this Friday, December 11th, we'll be releasing an episode entitled Three Focal Points for Newlyweds. Three Focal Points for Newlyweds. And just three areas that when you're a newlywed that you should focus on that may be a little bit of a difficulty, some tips, and really just a very applicable episode. And I'm saying newlyweds, but really it's for any marriage. I think you can apply these principles in these three areas. And I have a guest for that episode. That would be my wife, Tabitha. She joined me on the podcast, and we were able to record the first part of that episode. We'll release the second part on December 18th. And just a great podcast episode filled with personal stories. Some maybe that I didn't want shared. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. And uh, filled with personal stories, but I'm excited. They're just applicable. I think it could be a really great episode. If you know somebody who is recently married or somebody who, hey, maybe they just need some things on marriage, um, this would be the episode for them. So you'll see on this Friday, December 11th, 3 focal points for newlyweds. Make sure you don't miss out on that episode. we got a lot of exciting things coming up. Merry Christmas to you. And we also have a great Christmas episode and Christmas Eve episode coming up that I'm excited about. Of course, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So make sure to keep an eye out for those, but especially three focal points for newlyweds this Friday. And here is today's episode. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Merry Christmas to you from Sandy Creek Stirrings. Hope you're having a wonderful beginning to your Christmas season and hope you're enjoying things. And uh, boy, has it been an exciting Christmas season so far, of course, only, you know, really kind of a weekend. And uh, But hey, I love Christmas. I hope you do too. And uh, looking forward to the rest of our Christmas season. You know, it'll be gone very quickly. Uh, Christmas is going to fly by this year and it's just, you know, it's only like four weeks really, of Christmas time for us Christmas purists who start Christmas the day after Thanksgiving and move forward from there. You're one of the abominable heathen that put your Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving, you terrible person. And uh, no, you're fine. You can do whatever you want. It's your own house. But um, hopefully you're having a great Merry Christmas. And so Merry Christmas to you from Sandy Creek Stirrings. Of course, don't forget to listen to the end today. And we'll be playing another Christmas song for you at the end of today's episode. And so going to be another great Christmas song today. Now, of course, today is a Thursday, which means it's another Baptist History episode, and looking forward to that. Last week, just to give you a short review of what happened last week, we left off with uh, Henry Dunster. He had passed away, reaching really from the account of history only one person that we truly know of, and that would be Thomas Gold. Of course, Thomas Gold made his own stand in Boston, and did a great work, started the very first Baptist church in Boston, which was really kind of illegal at that time. And uh, but took the stand and decided to move forward. And we talked about everything that happened, how he went from imprisonment and banishment and uh, to be disfranchised. We talked about last week, and all of these things happened. And um, we talked about Thomas Gold, and we came all the way to where they had moved to Noodles Island. They had moved the church from Boston just out into the harbor, and there on Noodles Island, and uh, God was doing great things. And then 
the governor and the main minister, the main government minister of that area, died. They were gone. And so with the last act, really, of Thomas Gold's life, he moved them back to Boston while they were awaiting who would be elected to these new political positions. And so at that time, Thomas Gold moved, of course, his church back, as we mentioned, and he ended up dying October 27, 1675, a guy that I call the Fighting Baptist, and he fought for, really, uh, your and I, future freedom there in Boston, as far as religious freedom, and trying to establish new, or not new, but, you know, religious freedom in the new world, and uh, something that was not there yet. Of course, we've talked about through the journey through this Baptist History series about religious freedom. Uh, frank- frankly, you don't hear it. Um, you know, you hear about the pilgrims and, you know, the Mayflower, and they came because they wanted to serve God in their own way. That's right. But they also didn't want other people to be able to serve God their own way when they got to the New World. And there was established government religions. You were not allowed to have freedom of religion. That's something that would come later on. And we've talked about some men who truly stood up for our, for our Baptist cause, who, uh, who wanted to see religious freedom pass. We've talked about, of course, Roger Williams in Providence Plantation of Rhode Island. Uh, we talked about John Clark, who, in my opinion, was probably a greater advocate and— um, just greater in that sense of religious liberty and fighting for it, you know, gave up, I believe it was 11 years of his life um, there in England fighting for religious liberty there in Rhode Island. And then, of course, you've got the other men who would stand up and, and fight for religious freedom with their, very, with their very life, with their very bodies. You've got Obadiah Holmes, who was beaten on the, on the Boston Square uh, for, his religious, uh, for his religious freedom, trying to stand up for, for the future of religious freedom. You've got Thomas Painter, who we've mentioned before, who was, who was beaten. Um, then you've got Henry Dunster, who stood up for religious freedom, lost, his, lost pretty much everything. Lost everything. The first president of Harvard lost everything there is, and really, seemingly, from history, only touched one person. And that would be Thomas Gold, who lived his life in and out of prison, um, just fighting for religious freedom. Really, you owe your debt. Okay, You owe the debt of your religious freedom, as we'll study throughout this, this Baptist history series. You owe it to the great Baptist heroes of old. It doesn't matter what religion you are, what denomination you are, per se. I don't care if you're Presbyterian. I don't care if you're Catholic. I don't care if you're Methodist. I don't care if you're uh, whatever practicing religion you are. Um, for one, uh, you need to see true salvation in Jesus Christ, but in the sense, I don't care what religion you are because you have to look up to Baptists for your religious freedom in that sense, meaning you can be a Catholic, but you won't find Catholics standing up for religious freedom in early America. You can look for, you can be a a Muslim and you can practice freely here in, in the United States within, you know, some things and, uh, but the deal is you still have to look back to a Baptist who fought for your religious freedoms. Now, the Baptists would stand for religious freedom, and uh, we'll see more and more and more of that as we go through history. And, of course, there were some other men who really helped. But if you look at a guy like James Madison, who helped to pen pretty much the entire Constitution, um, he was influenced by a, a pastor we'll talk about later by the name of John Leland. Um, in fact, James Madison almost didn't make it to Congress because of John Leland. And John Leland was a Baptist pastor who fought for religious freedom. If it was not for that, you probably wouldn't even have the Bill of Rights with James Madison penned under the guiding hand of George Washington. If there had been no John Ganneau to influence George Washington, John Ganneau being a Baptist preacher, um, 
then you might not have the influence of George Washington on James Madison. What I'm saying is all these things about religious freedom trickle down to some Baptist men who took a stand. And of course, all those men that I mentioned, most of them we have not talked about yet. We haven't gotten to that point, but we will talk about them. So you can thank your Baptist forefathers for your religious freedom. You can, of course, thank our military for fighting to keep those freedoms and for the Revolutionary War heroes who fought to get those freedoms. But it really boils down to some Baptist heroes who originally stood on those issues. And so we left off last week with the no religious freedom, really, but the Boston Baptist Church moved back to Boston in 1674, Thomas Gold dying 1675. What would the fate of the Boston Baptist Church be? And that's kind of where we left off last week. Well, here they are, the Boston Baptist Church. What are they going to do? Well, if you remember last week, we talked about the Fourth Baptist Church in the New World, uh, the Baptist Church in Swansea, Massachusetts, on the very edge, the very edge of the jurisdiction of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. You had Pastor John Miles, and he really rose to the defense of the Boston Baptist, and temporarily he became their caregiver, their pastor. And so during this time, he led them to great heights and secrecy, and under his fiery and really admirable direction, they began building a meeting house, a secret meeting house in Boston. Of course, they weren't allowed to have a legitimate building, but they began building a secret meeting house on February 15th of 1679 is when the church had its first meeting in their secret building. It was deep on a piece of property that were owned by two men who were... um, who were gracious to their cause and allowed them to build a property deep in, in some woods. And so John Miles really headed that up, and then once they got into that building, he helped them to elect their new pastor, which would be a man by the name of John Russell. John Russell. So, of course, this isn't going to stay quiet for long. And so on cue, the Boston government issued an order once they found out about the secret building. They condemned the structure. And uh, they said, get rid of it. We're going to burn it down. It's going to go. But through the hand of providence, through the hand of God alone, for some reason, and still really unknown to this day, a letter was received to the government of Boston from the office of the King of England, which really, if I can just paraphrase it, said, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let them be. For what? For whatever reason, and to whom credit is due for that letter, nobody really knows, but as one author put it, but that we should simply thank God for his endless miracles. Now, this was this letter was publicly announced, and as you can imagine, if you were Baptist, they were exuberant. They were emboldened. I mean, they were excited. They got to church there that Sunday, but when they met together, they found the doors were boarded up, the windows were boarded up and nailed shut, all in direct opposition to even the letter that had been received from the King of England, whose jurisdiction they were still under. It was truly a, a direct message from the Boston government. They said, who cares? This is personal. We told you not to do this. But we don't care what the King of England says. This is personal to Boston. Can you imagine? The, Gost- the Boston government, they cheered. They had won. They had fought off Thomas Gold. They had put up with the latest sightings and preaching of Obadiah Holmes on Noodles Island. They had successfully nailed shut the entrance to this rogue church. And the day was already being planned by the Boston government to seize the Boston Baptist churchgoers and to bring them to court. The Boston government was exuberant. There the government officials met in a, in a stately Boston mansion, holding a celebratory party. They'd beaten They'd beaten off the Boston Baptist. 
It was over. They had won. Until a knock came at the door. The messenger said the nailed shut doors of that Boston Baptist church. Well, the nailed shut doors, they've been opened. And as the messenger looked at these men, he said, and really, a meeting is taking place right now. Yeah. You say, what did they do? The Boston Baptists kept fighting. Thomas Gold, the Fighting Baptists, I really feel inspired them to continue to keep fighting. Keep fighting. May of 1680 arrived and the whole church was ordered to come to court, stand before court for their religious crimes. Knowing that really no good would come of it, uh, they ignored the order. They ignored it. In response, they sent a petition to the Boston court to, to ask for them to grant permission for them to meet together. They sent that petition off to the Boston court. Please just allow us to meet together. Please, we're just asking a petition where we're, we're not harming anybody. We're not, it's not like we're murdering people. We're just simply meeting together. We want to be able to practice the freedom of religion. And so they sent that petition, not knowing what would come of it. So they met together and they continued to meet. They prayed together. They prayed like they'd never, like you've never seen before. They wept. They fasted. They begged God to do something. The new year, that was May of 1680, the new year of 1681 arrived. There was no word. I mean, can you imagine their thoughts? Did, did, can you imagine the thoughts of them? Does, does God even care about us? Is, is God going to help us? Was the, was the fight that Thomas Gold made and Henry Dunster gave his life for and Roger, and Roger Williams and John Clark who died with, and Obadiah Holmes who was beaten, was it worth it? Should we really have fought? Should we really have taken a stand? I mean, does God even care? We haven't heard in 10, 11 months now. Those are thoughts going through their mind. But February of 1681 arrived and word came back from the Boston government. The church had been given permission by the court to meet as a church. Can you imagine the excitement? Finally, they were granted legitimacy to practice their religion and not in fear of being imprisoned, not in fear of being in banishment, not in fear of being disfranchised, not in fear of any of those things, but that they could simply go to church and do it freely under religious freedom. They had been given permission by the court to meet as a church. Can you imagine the excitement, the, the throwing up? I mean, what I, what I look at it is, as you know, you know, when you look at those graduation parties where all the graduates throw their hats in the air, I can see that at the Boston Baptist Church. I mean, just a, sh- you know, just a shouting and a hooting and a hollering, and I mean, running around. I think if there's a time appropriate for doing laps in church, that was the time. They're running laps around church. I mean, it's exciting. The suffering of Baptist heroes for for 50 years, had just been paid off. For 50 years, their suffering had just now paid off. What a miracle. Can you imagine up in heaven? I don't know if this is the way it actually works in heaven. I don't know. But if you can imagine with me for a second and just indulge in my imagination can you see up in heaven as that church is jumping up and down for joy? They're excited. They're thanking God. They're praying to God. They're, they're crying with tears, those letters that have been passed around. The church was granted permission. And can you see up in heaven, I can just see God looking down and saying, Hey, Thomas Gold, come over here real quick. Thomas Gold says, Yes, sir. He said, Look down there for a second. 
You see what that is? Your fight was worth it. Your faithfulness was worth it. The stand you took was worth it. The time where you were disfranchised and you weren't able to buy and sell in the markets, but you kept doing right, it was worth it. The time you made the difficult decision to move to Noodles Island, it was worth it. The time you made the even harder decision to move back to Boston, it, it was worth it. Down there, they're celebrating permission. They're allowed to meet as a church. Thomas Gold must have been cheering. Thomas Gold must have been cheering. Wow, how exciting that is. And so they were allowed to meet. Things were going seemingly well. And now I give you, as we move on, and let's move out of that scene, almost like a movie. We're moving out of that scene, and let's go to a different scene. I want to show you really a carousel of the patriarchs of, of Baptist history. You have Obadiah Holmes. He was cheering. He was excited. In the same city as the place where he had made a stand, there now stood a legal Baptist church. Was it worth it, Holmes? Not Sherlock Holmes, Obadiah Holmes. And I believe Holmes would have unapologetically said yes. Having served as the pastor of John Clark's Newport Baptist Church for six years since John Clark's death, it was time for Holmes to go home. He passed from his, this life on October 15, 1682. A quote from a historian, his sufferings having made a lasting effect on the lives of many. John Miles, of course, he rejoiced at the opportunity to have helped the Boston Baptists build their building and guide them after the passing of their leader, Thomas Gold. With a smile on his face and truly joy in life, John Miles, pastor of the Fourth Baptist Church in the New World, passed away February 3rd of 1683. And truly the first became the last. Roger Williams, whose life and stand would impact Hutchinson, then Clark, then Holmes, then Dunster, then Gold, one of really the first Baptists that we know of to enter the New World, became one of the last of his peers to go. He had seen the passing of known Baptist John Clark, his loyal assistant Obadiah Holmes. He had seen the passing of fellow Baptist John, John Miles and Thomas Gold. And Roger Holmes went home to glory in April of 1683. Can you imagine up in heaven the fellowship of Williams, Clark, Holmes, Miles, Dunster, and Gold they had on the day when Roger Williams joined them, April of 1683? There was much to rejoice about. I mean, all of them had faced persecution at the hands of the Boston courts, but now, listen very closely, now watching from above, they witness the future of the Baptist Church of Boston. What rejoicing there must have been. Now, the, the fate of the Baptist cause in the New World, it's far from over. Um, it had switched hands to a new generation of Baptists. The old generation of Williams, Clark, Holmes, Dunster, Miles, and Gold, they'd passed on. Had they done enough to stir up those behind them? Had they really done enough to continue the generations of Baptists? Hmm. They'd given their all. They'd seen some amazing things in Boston happen. But as I said, the story is far from over. And as we continue that, you'll find in 1689, we have the Act of Toleration was passed. The Act of Toleration was passed in May 24th of 9, or 1689. 
It was a law passed by the Parliament in England that declared freedom of worship to those who were previously established as dissenters. You know who'd fit in that group? Baptist. Other Protestants, some Congregationalists, they were allowed to meet now and have freedom of worship. And eventually the act of toleration would make its way over to the New England colonies, but don't be deceived, the, the local governments still were not very happy. It still caused many issues for the Baptists we've been following, but this act of toleration was really a blessing of its time. It, wasn't, it was not complete freedom of religion. There were still limitations. In the New World, when it would finally make its way over 10 years in 1699, um, if you wanted to have your own services, like a Baptist, if you wanted to have services, you were required to do several things under this act of toleration. Um, you were required to notify the local court of your dissenter status. Um, you were required to declare what licensed, me- licensed meeting house that you wanted to attend at. Um, by the way, all meeting houses had to have a license from the court, and you were only to listen to licensed preachers who have received a license from that same court. Now, that seems like not religious freedom, and it's really not. Uh, you have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops, and but it was still, it was still a small step in the right direction. Was it religious freedom? No, absolutely not. Um, we're moving that way, but it's not religious freedom, but it was a, it was a small step in the right direction. There was a man by the name of Valentine Whiteman. He had started the First Baptist Church in Connecticut. As I said, his name was Valentine Whiteman, and he had started that church in Groton. I believe that's how you pronounce it. G-R-O-T-O-N. Groton, Connecticut. And really what happened was with his situation and under this, you know, act of toleration, he was taken to court um, over being a Baptist church and a Baptist minister. He was able to prove, though, that he had the file um, of the necessary paperwork, and they were a legal church under the Act of Toleration. You can imagine the court magistrates mumbling under their breath. On June 4th, 1708, 1708, under the Act of Toleration, once again we have another Baptist church becoming legal, the Church of Valentine Whiteman. I, can, I mean, can you imagine having started a church, technically being illegal, going through the process, being taken to court, possibly, you know, facing being thrown into prison, maybe even beaten but proving that under the Act of Toleration, he had worked for many, many years to fight for that, and he had achieved the legal status of a legal Baptist church. And what an exciting time for him that was. You see, this was a little bit more than just a movement for Valentine Whiteman. This was personal. And I want you to know him. If only you know his name alone, I want you to know a couple things about him. You see, he had come, Valentine Whiteman had come from a long line of Baptist fighters. A long line. He was the direct descendant of... Edward Whiteman. Now, you may not know that name, but Edward Whiteman was the very last Baptist to be burned at the stake in England. Very last one. Look up his name. Edward Whiteman, he was the very last Baptist to be burned at the stake in England. Valentine Whiteman was his direct descendant. Um, Valentine was born in Rhode Island, 1681. He would go on to marry Susanna Holmes. Does that last name sound familiar? Susanna Holmes was the granddaughter of Obadiah Holmes. Yeah. Valentine and Susanna got married 1702, and from there, he answered the call to start the first Baptist church in Connecticut. He continued there for 42 years. Talk about longevity in the pulpit. 
42 years until he died in 1747. When he passed away, his son Timothy, Timothy Whiteman, took over as the pastor, and he served as the pastor of the church for 40 years until he passed away. From there, Timothy's son, which would of course be Valentin's grandson, a man by the name of John Gano Whiteman, he pastored the same church for another 40 years. You know what that means? That's 122 years in one family. That's incredible. You know how long the average pastor lasts in the pastorate now? There's a stat out that says anywhere from about three and a half years to just over five years. Now, I understand there's certain situations where God just moves in that way, and I get that. I'm not saying that's always something wrong, but sometimes there's people just quitting, and they're not sticking to it. Your longevity in whatever you do in your life can impact your family tree. Did you hear that? Your longevity and whatever you do with your life can impact your family tree. Parents, how faithful you stay in your Bible time and prayer time can impact your family tree because you have children watching you who are looking and they see what you're doing and they see mommy and daddy who are practicing and, and staying faithful to their devotions and they're going to do the same. Here's the problem. The reason there's so many Christian kids who leave and never come back when they get 18, in fact, it's, it's 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10, listen closely, 8 out of 10 Christian young people raised in a Christian home, when they turn 18, walk out the back door of the church and never come back again. 8 out of 10. You know why? Because instead of seeing a mom and dad who was faithful to their devotions every single day, they saw a mom and dad who would do it some days. They saw a mom and dad who would do it on Sundays. They saw a mom and dad who would do it once a month instead of seeing a mom and dad who stayed faithful. Dads, if you're going to impact your children, the best thing you can do is be long in whatever you're going to do. I'm not saying you have to take a long time with it. I'm saying be faithful. Be faithful. Where is our faithfulness gone? Why are we such a quitting people? Really, Thomas Gold, as I mentioned before, called him the Fighting Baptist, the Fighting Baptist Boston Church. What would we be called today? The Quitting Baptists. Let's just be frank. We are the Quitting Baptists. We give up so quick. We stop so easily. We never stick to it. We are, as a generation, the Quitting Baptists. Yeah, that's the truth of our situation. We are the Quitting Baptists. My goodness, people, let's get faithful for the cause of Christ. Let's stay strong for Him. Let's stand in the fight and determine, I'm not going to let Satan win. And it comes down to your determination. It comes down to your attitude that I'm going to stick to it. I want this victory. And so I'm going to win because I want God to win. And whatever I put my hand to, I'm going to do it with my might because I want God to have the victory. I was listening to a uh, an interview of an old linebacker from a football team way back in, I believe it was the... Um, I say way back, <laughs> um, way back in the uh, early 90s, I think is when he played, late 80s. And um, he played for the Philadelphia Eagles, and I was listening to an interview, and he said, you know, tackling really comes down to attitude. Tackling really comes down to attitude. He said, you know, if you want to tackle the guy more than he wants to go down, you'll win. 
But if he wants to keep running more than you want to tackle him, he'll keep running. Satan wants to trip you up, Christian. Satan wants to get you down. Satan wants to devour you. Satan, if I can put it in this term, Satan wants to tackle you and take you out of the game. So where's your determination? You know you will fall, you'll get tackled, you'll get sacked, you'll get out of the game when you start wanting the victory less than he does. He's a fighter. Satan's a fighter. And here's the, here's the thing I, I will give you. Satan's not a quitter. But the problem is we are. We quit way too easily. And so why don't we get in our heads this week? No, Satan, you're not going to win because I want the victory for God too much. No, 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 no. You can, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep running because I want it more than you do. I want the victory more than you do, Satan, and so I'm going to keep with it. You think it was easy for Valentine Whiteman to stay in the pulpit and stay as a pastor for 42 years at the same church? No, it was not easy. You know why? Because sometimes people drive you crazy. You'll preach something and you'll be like, what? And you preach it and it's clear, it's clear cut. And the next week, the very week, the same thing you preach, somebody will do it blatantly, post it on Facebook. You know, you, you preach on dressing right and staying modest, and the very same week, a faithful Christian will post their, their pictures where they went to the beach and they aren't wearing any clothes. It's like, do you not listen? People can drive you nuts. I heard one pastor say one time that the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. And, of course, he was joking. It was a tongue-in-cheek tongue statement, you know, without people, you would have no ministry, but people can drive you nuts sometimes. And that doesn't matter if you're in the pastorate. Hey, I managed a hardware store for uh, almost five years. People can drive you nuts no matter where you're at. But the point is, it wasn't easy for Valentine Whiteman to stay faithful, but he did. For 42 years, this man stayed faithful. And then so he stayed so faithful that it encouraged his son to do the same. And now we've got Timothy Whiteman staying as the pastor of the, the church his father started, and he stays there for 40 years. Why? Because he determined to be faithful. And then based off of the example of his grandfather and off of his father, you've got John Gano Whiteman staying another 40 years at the same church, 122 years in one family. We've got a fighting family. Oh, my. Would they not be ashamed? to see our stick to in today's world? I'd be ashamed for them to see me. Poof. Poof. Yeah. Hey, and I'm the first one to raise my hand. I'm guilty. I need to be better at sticking to things. Need to be better at obeying God's command. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Let's stick to it, Christian. Let's be faithful. So, fate of the Boston Baptist Church, things were going well. The act of toleration, was it true religious freedom? No, but it was a step in the right direction, and what a wonderful testimony of Valentine Whiteman. And so, that'll be all we have for today. We'll continue next week with another episode on Baptist history. And a great narrative it is. We're getting into some of my favorite parts of Baptist history. I love this time period in Baptist history. For today, though, before we leave, I do have another Christmas song to play for you today. Today we'll be playing, and the title of the song is called The Angel Medley. The Angel Medley. It's got a couple different angel songs from the Christmas season. And let's see. I'm not going to name them for you. I want you to see if you can pick out the names of them. And so we're going to play The Angel Medley. It's from O Holy Night. 
a CD that is Piano Solos by Caleb Galvin. You can buy that CD at nvpublications.org. N standing for North, V standing for Valley, nvpublications.org. Simply type in Oh Holy Night, Piano Solos by Caleb Galvin, and you can buy that CD and hear all of these songs at home, and it'd be a great CD to add to your collection. And so today, without further ado, here is the Angel Medley. And as you listen to it, let me remind you this week, keep looking up and keep stirred up. <laughs> 